You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review's senior editor, Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz in the house. Yes, it is Thursday, August 3rd. Where has the time gone? And not to be confused, we actually are doing two podcasts today. So this will be a record. We've never done two in one day just because there's so much to talk about. And we're going to have a special guest on. And and this will be the next episode, episode 135. This is 134. Uh, that will be about health care. Here I want to give a vision on immigration, especially for those of you that you know, weren't with us last year when this was a bigger issue when my book Stolen Sovereignty came out and we discussed this more often. But this is what we're about at the conservative conscience. This at its core is what we're about. Using timeless principles and ideas and not just talking about them in the abstract and historically, although we try to do that a lot, but to hone in very specifically how they apply now, what pieces of legislation we could do, how we can message it, how we could win back our country. And this just speaks beyond the party process, whether you support Trump or oppose Trump. And and th- that is, in truth, what the original conservative conscience, the book written by Barry Goldwater was, A Timeless Vision, which is why Jeff Flake, and I don't want to get too much into this, <laughs> get sidetracked because I do want to get to immigration, but um, you know, Jeff Flake is such a flake, naming his book after Barry Goldwater's thing, saying, oh, I'm I'm above all this politics. Trump and everyone's destroying the party. Um, I'm a conservative. And we, we have an epic takedown of him, and I'll link to it in our show notes uh, just so we don't get off into this tangent too much. But he's the exact pro- – he is the problem. He is why we have Trump. He is why we have Trump. He has no ideas. He's voted with the left all the time. He's done nothing in the Senate. Um, open borders is anything, and he and we're going to get to our vision on immigration. He has, holds the exact opposite vision. He's given no vision on health care. He has no right to write a book. As as I, I agree with Brent Bozell, um, who by the way um, gave a blurb to my book, uh, why he is bastardizing um, his father's work um, with Barry Goldwater and the conservative conscience. And just before we get to immigration, I just want to note that this is the pendulum, the binary garbage that I've been yelping about for two years that so many of us have been caught in between. There's a group of people that their entire life is defined by sniffing Trump's rear end. There's a group of people on the right that are defined by being anti-Trump, and there's nothing, there's nothing else. They have no vision other than that. So, you know, people are a little bit confused, given that that's unfortunately the political dynamic on the right. Those are where the battle lines are drawn. Well, Daniel, you're you're praising Trump left and right now. And then the next day, you're bashing Trump all the time. You know, maybe you haven't gotten my shtick by now. Um, I, I have a different set of priorities. We are relentlessly consistent on our issues and principles. Um, if it overlaps with what Trump's doing, we'll praise him. If he's undermining it, we'll bash him. And the same for anything else. 
you know, obviously Ted Cruz is the closest to what we're doing in terms of a person, but it's not about Ted Cruz. And, you know, when he promoted his version of the health care bill, we opposed it. We said it just doesn't do what he said he was doing, even though he had pretty good intentions behind it, a lot better than others. But that at its core is what we do. This is what we do here at the conservative conscience. We give a broader vision. Um, and And that's where... You know, and that's the thing. There's a lot of bad things he's doing. Uh, you know, foreign policy is terrible. Uh, McMaster, Kelly, Tillerson, Mattis, they are all bad. Um, a buddy of mine, Rich Higgins, a good friend of mine, was fired by McMaster from the NSC National Security Council. I'll I'll link to the article and show notes. Um, and then in addition, you know, everyone's um Everyone in conservative talk radio has been transfixed on Comey and Russia and and therefore not doing what I do and giving a vision for what it means to have a winning message and winning ideas on healthcare and immigration, on foreign policy, on taxes, on debt, on, on, on entitlements, sovereignty, judicial reform. So many of our priorities here, nothing. Russia, Russia, Russia. Oh, we got to defend Trump. But what I always noted is Trump's not defending himself. So there's an, an article I'll link to where um, McCabe, the deputy or act and de- deputy FBI director, now the acting director, or until today, when um, the new FBI, uh, Ray, was uh, the new FBI director was sworn in, Ray is keeping McCabe. So Trump was tweeting and complaining about McCabe, and now he's keeping him. So go figure. Um, there's also a great BuzzFeed article. Now, they lament it from a left-wing perspective, but it's true anyway that Jeff Sessions is the only one who is actually putting points on the board in this administration, quietly um, but steadily changing things. And, um, you know, Trump is trashing him. So I have plenty to say about Trump that's negative. But again, it's not because, well, I, I mean, I happen to dislike him, but it's not so much a dislike him or like him. Um, it's that... We're always going to fight for what we believe in. But on immigration, he has done what we said he was said he was going to do, at least on the following issue. And I'm going to take yes for an answer until he screws us on it. Then I'll I'll fight him. Now, obviously, look, this doesn't excuse his um, the business of him uh, continuing uh, the amnesty and some of the other things we've criticized. But. Trump got behind Tom Cotton, the Cotton Purdue Raise Act. That will that is true immigration reform. We have an article out today really outlining it, but I want to really expand upon this in a very foundational conservative conscience style way. But this bill truly it will it will cut immigration by 40-50% and reorient it towards helping Americans. Only immigration that's patriotic. That's not a public charge. That won't be criminals. Won't be all from the third world like we have today. Um, truly merit-based, which is what everyone says they want, but actually believes in the opposite. So this just calls the bluff of people like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio that have said they supported this, and it puts it into legislation. So you know, one of the things I've criticized Trump about is that he always leads from behind. And you saw this very evident on the healthcare debate. Oh, just just send me any bill with the word healthcare, I'll sign it. Well, you you got to lead. You know, even though the White House doesn't technically write the legislation, but 
like I told you in the past, usually when your party controls Congress politically, you lead it, and often the White House even does kind of write the legislation. Um, so here he, from the get-go, is saying, this is what I support. I support the Cotton Raise Act, and hopefully he'll go out and give us, I think he should give a speech before Congress saying what I'm about to tell you, um, and, uh, you know, use photo ops and use the bully pulpit. So, you know, d- don't start hitting me now. Oh, so now you're for Trump? No, I'm for the same ideas that I that I spoke about all along. And and these ideas, you know, for for too long the discussion over immigration has been limited to are you for amnesty or against amnesty? Now, I'm against amnesty, but amnesty is not an immigration system. That <laughs> that's just one one a one-off point. What should our immigration system, our visa systems, our green cards, what type of people, for what period of time, what are our values, what are our laws in immigration? That's a much broader discussion. The same way we're saying that Obamacare and pre-existing conditions and insurance is not health care, right? Amnesty is the immigration discussion, kind of what insurance is to the healthcare discu- discussion. It's really a, discre- a distraction. In my view, it's it's you know the same way amnesty harms the debate. Insurance harms healthcare too, at least the way it's conceived now. And we're you're gonna you're gonna hear that more in my uh, next podcast, one thirty five, as we've been doing our series on healthcare. Um, but but this vision, roughly a year ago to this day, that very end of July. 2016, my book, Stolen Sovereignty, How to Stop Unelected Judges from Transforming America, came out. It's available on Amazon. I will link to it in the show notes as well. Please order your copy if you haven't done it until now. Um, there's so much more than what I'm going to tell you on this on this episode. Now, I've been touting the book more from the, the judicial reform angle, the courts. There's really two themes, immigration and the judiciary. But it all wraps into one because stolen sovereignty is kind of a double entendre. Our sovereignty has been stolen on immigration from our immigration policies, but also from our immigration, the laws that the courts are now making up, and the courts are also stealing the individual sovereignty of self-governance. And while while I discuss many issues, marriage, um, religious liberty, several others, the biggest concern I had was what the courts are doing on immigration, stolen sovereignty, where without the consent of the people, just bringing in all sorts of people, blocking deportations, certainly what you're seeing with the moratorium from the Middle East um, and, and refugees. I warned about that, and it was almost a prophecy. <laughs> That's literally what happened a few months after, you know, half a year after my book came out. So we spoke a lot about the need to reform the courts, and we do because we won't get immigration right. But I, but the whole second half of my book is about immigration policy. And I felt that we are forgetting our history, tradition, values, and laws and ideals on immigration. And what I do is I have different, different chapters. You know, in chapter six, I go through our um, – the values that our founders and early political leaders up until um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and, and, and Coolidge, what they believed, and even what Democrats said they believed until the 1990s on immigration, how they were universal values. Um, again, routing it from the colonial times. I go through our laws in chapter four and chapter a little bit in six and seven too, 
from the colonial times through the early times, through the states regulating immigration very carefully. First the colonies, then the states, then the federal government took it over in the 1880s, 1890s. And then I go through the trends and trajectory and I compare and contrast the current immigration to even our most open periods of time in, in the great wave from 1881 to 1919. And note how we've never done what we've done now. And I go through about 10 differences between this and the great wave, both in numbers and magnitude and the culture and the welfare state. And I, I felt we're losing this, that, that, that we're lying. If you, if you listen to the left, um, you know, you listen to them, you would think that we had open borders our entire um, life. We've let in anyone and everything. We've been a garbage can. And all of a sudden, a couple of random people are coming around and trying to change that. And they're a bunch of racist jerks. And the reality cannot be further from the truth. We've never done what we're doing. We've only brought in a limited number of people that were absolutely not public charges. They were only net positives. No criminals were allowed. And anyone who was was immediately deported. Um, no diseases. Certainly the Muslim immigration we never had until recently. None of this. None of it. None of it. None of it. Um, and then even in 1965, when that was all changed, and this is a big part of the article I'm going to link to that I write about, um, it's, it was, last year was the 50th anniversary of the, or you know, a year and a half ago, it was the 50th anniversary of the immigration bill that changed the immigration in America. It was not sold to the people as doing this. It was sold to the people as doing what Tom Cotton and Trump are saying with the RAISE Act, the exact opposite. So meaning they didn't sell it as what they're doing. They, they used our rhetoric. It's only, it's only the Kennedy bill, not the way it was sold to the public, but the way it wound up unfolding and as modified by the 1990 Immigration Act, several other things, is, and, and mixed with illegal immigration, which, by the way, was a byproduct of the 65 bill. Um, never forget that, because part of why we have so much illegal immigration is because we have so much legal immigration, so much low-skilled legal immigration that we've just opened the doors so then a lot of the remaining people in these countries are like, hey, I want to be reunited with my extended family and friends. They all live in America now, um, whereas we never had that before. So, you know, now, you know, if they can't get in legally, they'll, they'll come illegally. You know, a lot of a lot of um, liberals say, well, we don't have enough legal immigration. That's why we have illegal immigration. But the problem with that is if that were true, then the most illegal immigration we'd have would be from the countries where we have the least legal immigration, right? Instead, the most illegal immigration we have is from Mexico and Latin America, where we have the most legal immigration. 30% of all immigration since 1965, 50%, uh, I'm sorry, 30% of all immigration since 65 has been from Mexico. 50% has been from Latin America broadly. Um, and that's where most of our legal immigration comes from. So it's the exact opposite. It's because we have so much, they all want to come. 10% of Mexico is now in America. So, you know, they, they are flipping this on its head. And not to belabor my book and to give away my whole book if you haven't read it, um, or, you know, I don't want to be redundant. I try not to be redundant with all the articles I, I write because I know you could just read them. I want to give you something new. So I'm going to link to my article on on what the RAISE Act does and how it addresses the problem. But just to speak broadly, the principle of immigration is deeply rooted in the 
Declaration of Independence, governance by the consent of the governed, the social compact, the social contract, that all important decisions have to flow from the existing citizenry. Now, it doesn't flow directly. It flows through republicanism, representation, through your elected representatives. And the most important decision a society will ever determine is who will comprise that future orientation of your society that makes decisions on future debates and policies surrounding every issue. And that's why Madison uses the, the issue of naturalization as the quintessential example of republicanism, that it has to be decided through the majority of the people. Now, the, the, the thesis of my book, Stolen Sovereignty, is that immigration has been stolen from the people. It's the, it's the two unelected branches, the, um, the bureaucrats and the executive branch over the last 50 years, the way they've interpreted laws, um, and the, the courts, certainly unelected, they are the ones that have been destroying our immigration system. Nobody ever voted to make California what it is. Nobody did. Nobody, nobody voted for this. I mean, that, that, that's just obvious. I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a lot of um, you know, shocking facts, but in, in many counties in, in, um, in California, 35 to 45% of the population speaks a language other than English at home. Now, I understand if you have certain immigrants, they come in and, you know, the first few years, they're here, of course, you know, first generation, they're often going to speak a different language. I don't begrudge that. But this is just a measure of how much it is. And numbers and time matter. That's the key. It's how much. It's not immigration in the abstract. It's how much. Over what period of time. Nobody ever voted for this. And, and the few things people voted for, it mainly stemmed from one piece of legislation that was sold to the public as the opposite. That is the stolen sovereignty. And we used to all agree on this until recently. Now, I want to discuss this through the prism of, because I didn't write about this, so I wanted you to hear my thoughts on it. S Stephen Miller's now famous exchange from yesterday with... Um, with uh, I'm just distracted here. I see so much, so much news coming across the wires. But anyway, Stephen Miller's debate with with Jim Acosta, the reporter, when he had when he gave the presser about this raise act. So Jim Acosta obviously is not a reporter, so he just starts debating him as if he's an activist. And he said, "Well, yeah, it means you're going to throw Emma Lazarus's poem, The Colossal, you know, off the Statue of Liberty." That says, give me your tired and your poor. Now, I'm going to link to in show notes here. Glenn Beck already addressed this in, uh, I believe it was the 2010 CPAC speech he gave, what that poem meant. But, you know, Stephen Miller was right that that wasn't even put on when the statue was there in the 1880s. It wasn't put on until 1903. It was an addition. And it had nothing to do with immigration. And to the extent it intersected with immigration, the main point wasn't immigration, the extent it inter intersected with it, it actually proved the exact opposite. And our values, practices, and laws on the books in 1903 are the, were the exact opposite of what Acosta and these folks are pushing. 
and what they think the poem means. That's the irony of it. So let's unpack this. The main point of the Lazarus poem was an economic point. It was a freedom, free market, democracy, republicanism point, not an immigration point, open or closed. The point was, Europe, you're nothing but a feudal system. There's no liberty. You guys suck. Our republicanism is so much better. You could take the, you're poor and you're tired and you're hungry and and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll make something out of them. That's what freedom does. It wasn't an expression of immigration policy. Make America a garbage can. Give us your junk. Actually, I write about this in my book. It was called anti-dumping laws. The colonies passed them. They were very concerned from colonial times that Europe would actually do exactly that. That's the irony of it, that they'd give us their convicts and poor and and mentally ill and everything. Um, And they actually, in the Continental Congress, urged the colonies to pass laws you know, during that transition period before the Constitution was adopted, the federal system, uh, to to prevent that. And states guarded very, that very carefully until the 1880s. And then once the feds took over in the 1880s and 1890s, they passed laws, you know, doing exactly that. So does it contradict the poem? Well, first of all, poem is not policy. But still, what the poem, the poem wasn't meant for a, you know, Again, I go in my book, I, I discuss 10 different factors, the difference between now and the Great Wave, but two important factors is, A, you didn't have a massive ethnic lobby to discourage assimilation. Just the opposite, they encouraged immigration, uh, assimilation. And when, when I say assimilation, I don't mean a European nationalism style thing. You could be different, of course, different religions, different things. You don't have to have a certain ethnicity or color of skin. But the idea was, when, and I route this, to our founders, their views on immigration, they wanted Republican Americans. They used the term, actually, a hyphenated term, Republican Americans, that you shared our Republican values, certainly that you weren't a public charge and a convict and all that. And now we have courts demanding that rapists and murderers, Iraqis, um, you know, that Michigan judge, stay in America. Unbelievable. But anyway, we, we didn't have... We had a very strong culture in America to assimilate. And even the immigration groups like Highest, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, right? They don't understand their own legacy. In the 1880s, when Jews were coming, um, you had the Russian czar, you know, the czarist uh, pogroms against Jews in 1881, 1882. It's when they started coming from Russia, Eastern Europe. Uh, they, they, Highest, was around then, and they they would make sure that they spread them around, that they don't cluster and create ghettos, and they were very careful, very uh, very in tune to that. So that's number one. Number two, you didn't have the welfare state, and that was Emma Lazarus's whole point. It was an act of rugged individualism. You'd come here on a ship, you'd come here, you wouldn't get it paid for, you you had to get a sponsor. Often it didn't work, and you went back. Then, or if it did, you'd bring your family later, and you worked, and you, by definition, it was uh, sink or swim. By definition, it was an act of rugged individualism. There was no hand-holding. There was no bilingual education. There was no business where you have 81 languages in some school districts, not just in places like New York and L.A. and San Francisco, but, but places like Wichita, Kansas now. You didn't have where 30% of the kids were immigrants in Nashville, Tennessee. 
You didn't have that. You didn't have, you know, yes, of course, at home, some of the, the parents obviously, you know, they got off the boat. They didn't know English right away. But you better believe when those kids went to school, that was all they learned. Now we have reverse assimilation. That's what they had. That's what we believed in back in. That, that's even, I'm not talking about our closed period from 1921 to 1965. I'm talking about the open period from the 1880s until 1919. Um, this is what they did. They only let in people with these values. And that was the point of Emma Lazarus. That was the point of the poem. Yeah, we'll make something of them. She, she could have and would have never said that under our current system. It doesn't work that way anymore. It's not what they're coming for. They're coming for the goodies. Not all, but but too too many of them. And again, you know, culture does matter to a certain extent. We could take people from the third world, but numbers do matter. Keep in mind, 90% of the immigrants of the Great Wave were from Europe. Now, 90% are from outside. Only 10% are. You know, it does make a difference. You can't tell me with a straight face that, you know, all things equal, there's a, no difference between bringing in 100,000 people from Canada or 100,000 people from Somalia, Somalia Butan, or, or Guatemala. It just, I mean, that, that's a no-brainer. You're not going to get assimilation that way. And, and the proof's in the pudding. We see it. But moreover, the laws on the books were the exact opposite. It's funny, we talk about, um, you know, build the wall and pay for it. They actually had the 1891 Immigration Act, which was on the books in 1903 when the Emma Lazarus poem was placed on the Statue of Liberty. That act actually said any public charge is inadmissible. Anyone who comes here based on advertisements, you weren't allowed to advertise. Like you're coming for, you know, for a job or because they didn't want these cool, they call them coolies, these migrant laborers. They didn't want them. They didn't want people coming for them. They wanted people to become part of America. It wasn't about employment. It wasn't about this or that. It was broadly, they wanted Republican Americans. So if you were caught being inadmissible, let's say you were caught being a public charge, not only were you inadmissible, but if we caught you still being a public charge after, within a year of you being here, you were deported and the ship liner company that brought you here had to pay for it. Now, that's, you know, again, this might sound cruel, but they were that scrupulous in defending the, the values of immigration were, were such that everyone wanted to come to America. America was the greatest place around. Supply and demand dictates that you only bring in the best of the best. We only want to bring in people that are net positive. That, that taxpayers should never, ever have to suffer. Should only work for Americans. As Calvin Coolidge always said, the first order of immigration, first principle is that it should work for Americans and existing immigrants. It's not for those coming. No, you know, and, and that's really the motto of almost every country works that way. But America was no different. Don't let anyone tell you that. I mean, they were so scrupulous about this. Um, you often had families come, and believe me, these weren't like Sharia immigrants or people that were going to be on the dole. I read about a case in my book because it, it, it ties into the courts, and there was a court case on this. Um, a family, a Jewish family from Russia, a Kaplan, that came over 
ooh, maybe I like to say the first decade of the 1900s, 20th century. Um, maybe, maybe it was 1912 or so. 1913 was yeah it was it was closer to the time it was closer to, to world war one and uh 1915 I, I don't have my book in front of me and basically there was a couple and an adult and a daughter except the father figure like many came a few years before to earn money so you know he was industrious and earning money and wasn't on the dole brought over his lovely wife and daughter and again the father already had a foothold here and the examiners took one look at the kid. And, and, and I just bring this up because they did this all the time. And I'm sure many of you have stories from your family and, and uh, relatives. And they looked, in, they looked at her and said, feeble-minded, inadmissible. Because feeble-minded was one of the, that was a legal term. It was one of the uh, categories of inadmissibility. And they were going to divide up the family. Go, go home. The daughter is inadmissible. And what, what happened was that World War I broke out, so then they couldn't do it, so they allowed her to stay, but only for a period of time, and only if the, I don't know if it was the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society or a similar group would pay for their stay and ensure she doesn't become a public charge while she's here. I mean, they were so careful with that. Um, and they did this with diseases all the time, inadmissible, inadmissible. Um, and this was during the most open period when we had the Great Wave. So what they're saying is complete bogus. It's completely not true. And, and again, I, and, and this is not something I'm proud about and, and support. I'm just, you know, history is history. Let's not fight, argue over history. You could argue over whether you agreed with it. Um, but this, keep in mind, 1903 is the time that they had the Asian Exclusion Acts. They categorically barred all Asians, Japanese and Chinese. They weren't allowed. So again, I mean, don't talk to me about some stupid poem. I mean, those were the laws at the time. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that was a good idea, but those are the laws we had, and that was even the most open period of time. But there's one thing a lot of people miss when they contrast the great wave to, to the current wave. Part of the reason why it was so successful and the current wave is so unsuccessful is that we did have the shutoff. That's the irony. We're debating a cool-off. You know, this, this shuts off 40, 50% of immigration, the RAISE Act. Again, look at my article for more details on how it addresses it. But the moratorium that they had in 1921, the dramatic cutback, is exactly why it worked. Is exactly why it worked. I have a quote in my book from a noted immigration historian, and it was not a conservative. I think they're actually coming from the other perspective. I think they were kind of lamenting it, but nonetheless agreed to what I was saying. Maldwin Jones, he was a big immigration historian. Um, he wrote, yeah, Maldwin Allen Jones observed, quote, with reinforcements no longer arriving from across the ocean, ties with Europe were gradually weakened and memories of the old life grew dimmer with each passing year. This dynamic accelerated the Americanization of those groups which had come earlier. Yet now we have reinforcement after reinforcement after reinforcement of the same areas, and that's why you don't have it. And then you have illegal immigration mixed in, which is that they're obviously the least to assimilate, and it, it it's just a vicious cycle. I actually have a graph in my book showing that you know we often talk about immigration numbers; those are the admissions, the green cards. But 
what's even more important is the naturalizations. Who's going to become part of America, become a voting member of society? So if you look at the, if you contrast the naturalizations to the Great Wave, it's even starker. Um, naturalizations were delayed. So peak immigration of the Great Wave was, let, let me just say 1908, uh, give or take. That's That was the most, you know, we had the most immigration. Um, it peaked also a couple of years in the 1890s. The peak naturalization wasn't really till the 1930s. There was a big lag period. It, it took longer. Also, keep in mind, a lot of people died. I mean, you know, life expectancy was much lower, so a lot of them never converted to citizens. It was really the second generation doing it. Um, I plot on the graph peak naturalization of the Great Wave took place at the, at the nadir of new immigration. 1930s, as you all know, was the shutoff. I mean, we we brought in, you know, instead of a million people each year, we brought in about 30,000 each year. And yes, I know we should have let in more Jews. We should have let in more persecuted people. There's a lot of reasons behind that. Things went wrong with that. But there's no reason we can't make exceptions. So don't, you know, let anyone give you a straw man or, or argument that a general cool-off shouldn't preclude making, you know, we were all prepared to let in Charlie guard and make him a citizen and do whatever that was needed to bring them in. Um, being persecuted by the stupid British, uh, uh, socialist medicine. We could do that. Legitimate refugees, <laughs> not the ones where we're for the most part, we're talking about today, you know, Jews and Christians, the Yazidis persecuted by the Islamists. We could easily do that. But anyway, that is what, that is the time that they um, that they grew up in. That's when they they became citizens. Contrast to now, peak naturalization now, when the great wave of the last twenty years are being naturalized. It is while we have a record new influx and new influx and new influx. Again, I don't have time to go through all the numbers. I'm just uh, you know flipping through my book here, going through. Uh, just all, I have tons of statistics in chapter seven just will prove conclusively how we've never done this in terms of sheer numbers. Um, it's just it's just amazing stats. You'll, you're not going to read this anywhere else. Um, you know, again, just, just flipping through this. But, you know, there, there's an, another really important point here. And I'm sorry if you hear the pages turning. I'm just, uh, just kind of doing this on the fly. Um, I want to read to you a couple couple passages from it. This is from page 150. Although immigration spiked between 1880 and 1920, the shutoff created a dynamic in which, on net, the foreign-born population in the country went down, so that by 1970, 90 years after the beginning of the Great Wave, the immigration population had only increased 44% in raw numbers. Over that same period, the native-born population increased by 306%. Contrast this to the current wave of naturalization, which is already three times larger than the peak wave in the 40s, right? The 40s and 30s, like I told you, was that, that's when you had the peak wave of naturalization, not immigration. And it is coinciding with an even larger wave of new immigrants coming to reinforce the new citizens, anchoring them back in their old culture and values. By 2060, if nothing changes, by 2060, 90 years after the benchmark date of 1970, the immigrant population is projected to be 715% larger in raw numbers. And over the same period of time, the native-born population is projected to increase by just 77%. That's not a country. 
that, that I mean, <laughs> to, to me, I, I have a million statistics in my book on chapter seven, but that to me really bears out, you know, this point like like never before, like never before. You know, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm also looking for, uh, you know, just just bear with me. I'm looking for another quote here from Reagan that I want to read read to you. And uh, where is this? Let me just. Uh, gosh, it's funny. I don't even remember my own, my own book anymore because I've uh, I've just written so much on this. Um, let l- let me let me just read to you another page here. Perhaps the most glaring contrast between this great wave and the early wave of immigration is the difference in character of the America to which they are immigrating. During the first half of the 20th century, America had a very strong culture and an unflinching sense of patriotism and Americanism permeating every facet of society. Nobody expressed his dichotomy better than Ronald Reagan toward the end of his farewell address in 1989. I'm going to quote to you here. Uh, you know, This was his final speech as president and the final part of the speech too. Quote, those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American, and we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from your neighborhood, from the father down the street who fought in Korea or the family who lost someone at Anzio. Or you could get a sense of patriotism from school. And if all else failed you could get a sense of patriotism from popular culture. The movie celebrated democratic values and implicitly reinforced the idea that America was special. TV was like that too through the mid-60s. End quote. Then uh, this is again from me in my book. This America was the country that absorbed the immigrants of the great wave. The cultural pressure to assimilate and Americanize was too impervious for any ethnically motivated subversion and counterculture to successfully dilute the character of the country in a negative way. Contrast that to the American culture to which the modern wave of immigrants has emigrated, and you get a sense of why this wave has permanently transformed this country. As far back as 1989, when the counterculture to Americanism and patriotism was far less potent than it is today, Reagan was already ominously warning the public. But now, we're about to enter the 90s. Again, this is a quote. I'm... I'm Quoting from Reagan, but now we're about to enter the 90s, and some things have changed. Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. And as for those who create the popular culture, well-grounded patriotism is no longer the style. Remember, this is long before transgenderism and any of this garbage. Reagan was lamenting 1989 culture and what he feared in the 90s. You're telling me that in 2017, you could look at American culture and tell me that great wave immigration could work now. And again, great wave immigration was much, much less in sheer numbers, in the origin of where it was coming from, all the differences, no welfare state. But I'm just saying this point alone, not even the immigrants' fault, the character of the Native America. Again, of course you had ghettos, of course you had, you know, people complained about it, you know, the first the Irish in the 30s and 40s and then 1830s and 1840s and then, you know, the great wave of Italians and, you know, Catholics and Jews from Eastern Europe 
sure, you know, yes, and, you know, the left will say, and you complained about it back then and said racist things about it. Yeah, I mean, look, people always had issues, and, you know, yeah, obviously, you know, some of it was legitimate, some of it was just the attitude of the time. You know, like the, the, the Chinese exclusion acts, obviously, I don't support that. But I'm just saying, just telling you guys, that, that those are the values. Those are the values of our immigration system that we had back then. Um, this is, you know, they, they, they even uh, again, even if the parents clustered in these neighborhoods, the kids went to pure red, white, and blue American schools. There was no bilingual education and no transgender education. So you had rapid, rapid, rapid assimilation, even from people that at the time were viewed as un, you know, just just impenetrable. And look, yes, they were different back then. You know, it was predominantly Protestant and mainly from Eastern and Western Europe, but uh, for, from um, Western and Northern Europe rather than East, Eastern and Southern Europe, um, and Catholics and Jews. But you know what? You know, my my great grandparents, they were, um, you know, they came throughout that great wave, 1890s, 1910s, you know, that then. And, uh, you know, they came from from Austria, Germany, Poland, uh, you know, areas like that. And, yeah, they were different, but, you know, dude, they weren't like the Somalis, I'm sorry. I mean, some of them even, they, they, they were educated relatively for, for the standard of the times. Uh, so, you know, just this whole revisionist history is just nonsense, you know, the way they... They paint our immigration system. It's just it's just pure, pure nonsense. But 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 again, you know, there's there's another very important thing. Yes, you had racists at the time. Now, again, the term racist is kind of a little bit weird to ascribe to that period of history. It's it's a modern day term. Um, and yet people said not nice things, and yet people had not nice motivations with the 1921 and 1924 bills. That is true. Everyone supported it. People forget that. Calvin Coolidge was the perfect embodiment, and, and that's why I use him as kind of the protagonist in my book, as the model for such a system. He said if he had the line-item veto and could take out the ban on Japanese from the bill, he would do it. But nonetheless, he signed the bill because he broadly endorsed the general goals, and history proved him correct. Again, the fact that they that FDR and his cronies didn't make exceptions, the U.S. St. Louis and with the Holocaust is is immaterial to what happened in 1924. That was the right decision to make, and you know it wouldn't have broadly been broken by by um, what they did, and and ultimately they did let them in after the Holocaust. Unfortunately, there was the remains, and that was long before 1965 bill. You know, the 1965 bill was not needed to address that, um, but. Let me just you know close with with this realization of what happened. In 1921, there was unanimity of opinion among both the general public and politicians that there was an urgent need to curtail immigration in order to buy time needed to pass legislation to restructure our immigration system, as they did as, as did happen in 1924 when the House unanimously passed a bill curtailing immigration across the board. There was no recorded vote. The bill passed the Senate 78 to 1. You hear that? The shutoff in 1921 was unanimous, and it passed the Senate 78 to 1. Expressing the universal view at the time, the accompanying report from the House Committee on Immigration and Naturalization stated, quote, there is a limit to our power of assimilation. 
Could you imagine what they would say now? That's where we're coming to. This is where we are now. I don't have time to get into the nitty gritty um, of what the Rays Act does because we're already way over time. We're 45 minutes running now. Um, and I'm, I'm really violating company policy as I've done on my past three or four. So I don't want to get in trouble here. But I'm just telling you guys, you know, this is what the, the bill restructures our system properly and makes it all merit-based. And not not skills in terms of, oh, crony visa programs like the H-1B and the EB-5 program where companies and developers could bring in a controller immigration system. No, it's broad-based of the people, by the people, for the people. Broad-based criteria. It's not, oh, IBM needs you because there's nobody with a bachelor's in computer science in America, rocket science. No, it has a point system um, has a pool of 130,000 people. We don't need a million immigrants, 130,000, and has a point system. Now, there are other categories, too. It does. It's not just 130. We'll take the numbers from about 1.1 million a year to roughly 500,000 a year. But 130,000, it's a pool of people, pool of people, you know, because uh, just before I get to that, because it's not shutting down immediate family members. You know, we, we don't want to choke off immediate family right away. You got to do this gradually, over time, it will be all skills-based, not family. Now you don't, but we are choking off the extended family categories and the diversity visa lottery. All things, by the way, I call for in my book. This is why I'm so, see, I've been criticizing Trump left and right. I'm not going to be a jerk when he endorses something that I directly called for in my book. You know, yes, I don't, is he going to message it properly? Is he going to do it? Is he going to, you know, ruin it? I, look, I don't know. But, you know, now that he's endorsing it, I can't ignore that. And I do have to be intellectually honest and consistent and praise that act. That is what I call for in chapter eight of my book. But anyway, what this does is um, 130,000 visas and it, it's it's to the highest bidder, but not the highest bidder who buys off a company or who has ties to a family member. It's who scores the highest on the criteria of education, of entrepreneurship, of your past accomplishments. Um, and, and that's really what Australia does now. Um, Canada to a lesser extent, but Australia is the model. And, you know, we follow a lot of their socialism. We should follow this as well. They've had enough of it. This, if we ran on this, everyone wants merit-based. Everyone, everyone wants patriotic assimilation. This would re, rejuvenate the party. This would, this would be something to run on. Sadly, we're left with the lowest common denominator. What Trump is good on, the rest of the Republicans are bad on. And then so many other things he's bad on. And, you know, so we can never match it up. But th this is why we need a new party. The same way I believe a new party could advocate true healthcare reform with new talking points and a new refreshing message that not only appeals to the conservative base, but a broad array of Americans. I believe the same thing is true with true immigration reform. We're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks, but I just wanted to give it to you just kind of what you're not hearing are true history and traditions on immigration. Buy your copy of Stolen Sovereignty at Amazon. It's there for 17 bucks. It's a steal, um, as well as Mark Levin's book. Mark Levin uh, also wrote the foreword to my book. Um, thank you for that, Mark. And uh, you can see more of Mark and Steve Dace at CRTV, promo code Horowitz. Also go to preparewithcr.com. Patronize our buddies at at, Patri at Patriot Supply. <coughs> Sorry, Patriot Supply. These guys give 140 ready-made meals for just 99 bucks. Look out for our next episode as well, episode 135. 
an amazing interview with an amazing guy on true healthcare reform. Until next time, God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.